Hello, and welcome to The Sound of Space, a podcast brought to you by the University of Toronto Aerospace Team. Welcome back to TSAUCE, everyone. Today, we'll be talking about the James Webb Space Telescope. Today, we're recording about the 20, around the 23rd of uh, December, which is approximately one year after the launch of James Webb, which was due for launch uh, last year, Christmas 2021, uh, so that's 25th of December. So today we'll be going over some more of the technical details and take a more of a deep dive uh, into the James Webb Space Telescope, uh, including the manufacturing of James Webb, the history behind James Webb, and some of their missions and early findings. So start. let's start a bit with a bit of the history, Tio. So you want to kick us off? Of course. Um, yeah, so the James Webb Space Telescope w- didn't always have that name. It was initially named the Next Generation Space Telescope, Telescope, but then it was renamed 2002 after uh, James Webb, who was um, the head administrator for NASA during the Apollo era. He retired uh, soon after uh, the moon landing, the first moon landing, first man on the moon, and then he died in 92, 1992. And so the telescope was named in his honor. Um, it was not designed to replace the Hubble Space Telescope, but to be its successor and to kind of go beyond and look further than Hubble did. So there are lots of very distinct differences between the two. And the timeline was kind of crazy. So I'll pass it over to Katan. Yeah, so the timeline uh, has been much longer than I think most people realize. You know, you might think maybe 5, 10, 15 years, but actually... Uh, the concept originated back in 1989, uh, and the mission objectives were defined throughout the 90s. Uh, it's really in uh, 1996 that the real proposal came out for a telescope, and the manufacturers of Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman were selected in 99. Uh Finally, the construction began in 2004, and in 2005, the launch provider of Ariane 5 rockets was selected. And finally, in 2007 and 2008, the construction actually began. Uh, We'll talk about it more later on, but the actual mirrors were completed around 2016. So that's a huge, something like 12, 13 years between the actual beginning of the construction and the actual completion of some of the components. And then we waited another few years to actually launch it. The launch, like I mentioned, was actually December 25th, 2021. Yeah, exactly. And the cost was insane, right? It was uh, about 10 billion USD. And they they say the official timeline of like beginning to end of the design and construction phase was about 17 years. Like if you really add up all of the conceptual phases and you know the extra time between the launch and whatever... It ends up being a bit more. But yeah, it's a crazy, crazy intense project. But I mean, this is pretty on key for most space programs, I would say, right? Uh, this was not during, for example, the space race or anything. And in general, when, <laughs> and when, yeah. when everyone was rushing, right? So in general, space programs tend to take their time because there's no real, uh, there's no real opportunity or room for margin for error. Because once things mess up, they're done, they're gone, there go billions of dollars. So, you know, in general, rather than speed up a timeline, they will they will definitely slow it down. Yeah, especially with a project like James Webb, which we'll talk a bit 
more about this later, but it's not, um, it's really, really far and it's not serviceable. So they really had to do everything that they could to make sure it was as perfect as it could be because there was really no way for humans to go service it the same way that they did for Hubble or even to get robotic servicing to occur either. That was never part of the plan. So they had to spend lots of money, lots of time on this. Um, and the design is absolutely insane. There were lots of stakeholders, like Katan already mentioned, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, they were um, helping out with the project. But the main agencies were NASA, uh, ESA, so the European Space Agency, and also the Canadian Space Agency also played a part in developing scientific instruments. Um, ESA is the one who provided, you know, the launch provider, actually. And we'll talk a bit more about the launch later on. But let's go into some of the engineering and science. This is going to get a little intense. So get ready. <laughs> um, and uh, maybe we'll kick it off with uh, a bit of the design aspects. Yeah. So one of the key design uh, priorities for the James Webb Space Telescope, and uh, it's important to mention, is that it needs to uh, image in the infrared spectrum. And one of the challenges with imaging in the infrared spectrum is to uh, actually uh, cut down or limit the noise, the infrared noise um, that you experience uh, on your sensor. Uh, the reason for that is because almost everything gives off infrared radiation, so including mirrors. So to avoid that, you actually need to cool your system to very 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 cold levels so james webb the all the instruments operate on the order of seven kelvin to something like 30s of kelvin um we we talk a bit more about this later in more detail but uh that's very very cold keep in mind that uh zero degree celsius is what 273.15 kelvin mm -hmm. So that's very, very cool, very close to absolute zero. In this sense, James Webb Space Telescope needs to be cryogenic and needs to be kept cool. Yeah, exactly. So the, the mirrors themselves have to be kept at negative um, 220 degrees Celsius. Uh, the winters in Canada get to like negative 20-ish. So tack on another 200 below zero. And that's the temperature of uh, the mirrors that we're talking about here on the James Webb Space Telescope. The instruments, just like Katan mentioned, to you know account for this infrared noise, those have to be very cool as well. And you'll also notice if you've seen um, artistic renderings or even actual photos of the James Webb Space Telescope is that there's this massive foil-looking kite-shaped thing. We'll talk more about this a bit later, but that's the sun shield, and it's used to also shade the mirrors from the heat of the sun. So they're doing a lot to keep the instruments and the mirrors cool to achieve the scientific objectives. The other thing that is really important that the mission plan has included in order to reduce the uh, amount of radiative heat experienced by the uh, by the by the telescope is that it operates at an interesting point in space called a Lagrange point, and it, specifically at the L two, which is the second Lagrange point. And that the interesting part about this, it's actually, uh, it's a, uh, I think it was a geostationary yes. type of orbit. And, and it's, uh, it's constantly in the dark side of the Earth. So that what that means is that 
it's actually using the Earth's shade from the sun in order to protect itself from the sun's radiation. And that drastically reduces the thermal cooling requirements in general. Exactly. So lots of design decisions were made specifically for this cooling element. Um, so how about we talk more in detail about the mirrors? So they're the big mirrors that you'll see, the gold ones in the photos. Uh, the, that's what James Webb is very famous for. I actually have earrings that are shaped like those mirrors. Um, but those are um, the primary, that's like all of them together, all those hexagon shapes, that's referred to as the primary mirror. Um, so the primary mirror design is made up of 18 hexagon shaped mirror segments. When you put them all together, the diameter, so one end to the other, is about 6.5 meters. And the reason they chose hexagon shapes is so that they could be fit very, very close together. Um, so no gaps. So it can be put together very well. And those mirrors, so the primary mirror is uh, concave. Uh, the secondary mirror, most people might not notice this one, but there are these like booms that come off of the edges of the primary mirror and they kind of align at this point, like a triangle point in front of it. And that dot over there, that's the secondary mirror. So there's another one across this big golden piece. That one is 0.74 meters in diameter. Um, and that one's actually convex. So the big one's concave. The smaller round one is convex. Right. And, and uh, some other details, just uh, the actual material of the mirrors are beryllium, uh, specifically in a fine powder kind of form. And also the mirrors themselves, I believe... Uh, were coated in gold, correct yes. me if I'm wrong. Exactly. Uh, and so th the reason for that is the high reflectivity of gold, also the low reactivity of gold. Um, and finally, one of the, for me personally, most incredible aspects of this is the level of actuation on every single mirror in uh, that set of mirrors. Every single mirror is has at least six actuators and some have extra actuators an extra actuator to control the curvature of the mirror piece uh so that means at least six times what was it 18 pieces six times 18 actuators on this set of mirrors which is a lot a lot of motors yeah uh and all all working to calibrate all working to align and all with their own set of power requirements, which means that that's a lot of power drain there too. Exactly. So that's so that every single one of those mirrors can be manipulated in six uh, degrees of freedom or in those concavity situations, I guess, seven degrees of freedom. Um, so how about we move on? We talk about a little bit of, um, we'll talk about the science instruments. So this is the bulk of the payload for uh, the James Webb Space Telescope and a lot of you know, the scientific value that lots of academics and scientists and different countries and agencies were really, really, you know, investing in. Um, so how about we start with uh, the near-infrared camera? So that's NIRCAM, abbreviated NIRCAM. Um, it was provided by the University of Arizona. So this camera, that's the primary imager. It covers the infrared uh, wavelength range from 0 0.6 to 5 microns. Uh, and this was actually what was used to calibrate all of the mirrors at the very beginning. So we're going to talk a little bit about the deployment and the calibration um, when we speak about the launch. Um, but this instrument was intended to detect light from the earliest stars and galaxies in the process of formation, 
and you know young stars in the milky way and objects that are really 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 old so this is the primary instrument this one's used the most yeah and another interesting i guess aspect of it is uh it has coronagraphs which allow it to take pictures of uh, very faint objects with bright centers so uh pretty much similar to our sun as you may recall the corona of the sun uh but another uh payload that's on board here uh james webb is called uh, the near-infrared spectrograph. So that's uh, near-spec. Uh, so this one was provided by the ESA and some other components on, were provided by NASA or the Goddard Space Center. Um, it operates on uh, the wavelength range of also 0.6 to 5 microns, uh, but it has, I believe, slightly higher resolution. So another really cool thing about near-spec is that it was designed to observe 100 objects simultaneously. So this is the first spectrograph in space that has this multi-object uh, capability. Um, the next instrument we can talk about is the mid-infrared instruments, abbreviated MIRI or MIRI. Um, this one had some issues recently, which we will get to soon. Um, but this was provided by the European Consortium, uh, ESA, and NASA. And this instrument is both a camera and a spectrograph that sees light with wavelengths longer than visible light. So this is 5 to 28 micron range. Uh, it detects the red shifted light of distant galaxies, newly forming stars, and faintly visible comets. Um, so the MIRI spectrograph will enable, or it does enable, medium resolution spectroscopy. Uh, this provides new physical details of distant objects that it observes. And this one... This one, get this, operates at seven kelvins. So this is one of those really cold, those are cold ones. Yeah, well. yeah. so uh, the other two operate around 37 kelvin uh, for the seven, which is actually achieves uh, passively. Uh, but the, the issue with operating at seven kelvin is that you cannot achieve that passively. So this one actually has its own uh, uh, active uh cooling system uh so that includes a pulse tube pre-cooler and jewel thompson loop we definitely will not get into exactly what those are <laughs> just know that those cool it down uh from the 37 kelvin down to 18 and down to 7 kelvin yep exactly um now this next one uh, the fine guidance sensor and the near infrared imager and slitless spectrograph. That's a mouthful, but those are two instruments. It's kind of like a two in one. And this one is near and dear to our hearts because it was provided by um, Canada. So the CSA Canadian space agency was kind of in charge of this contract, but it was actually um, developed, built and tested by Honeywell aerospace. So um, this was used uh, or it is used <laughs> to investigate First, uh, light detection, exoplanet detection, and characterization, and exoplanet transit spectroscopy. This wavelength range is from the 0 0.8 to 5 micron range. Um, they're packaged together, so both of those instruments, uh, NERIS and the FGS, but they function independently uh, from each other, and they have a bunch of different observing modes and software functions. Yeah, if I recall, the exoplanet detection was actually one of the first operations that happened uh, when it became operational, they actually investigated an exoplanet. Yes, yes, they did. Um, so 
now we come to some of the, the actual spacecraft elements. So that includes uh, the spacecraft bus and the sun shield. So these are things that basically support your payloads and make sure they can run appropriate uh, properly. And specifically, starting with the sun shield, make sure that massive amount of radiative heat does not get to your cooled uh, sensors. Uh, so the sun shield is used to protect the telescope from both external and internal sources of light and heat. Um, and it stays between the telescope and the earth or moon or sun. So if you can visualize that, as I mentioned, it, this telescope is at L2, Lagrange point two. It's always facing away from the earth between, uh, and the earth is always between it and the sun. So this sun shield, if you can imagine it, is always facing the Earth and protecting it from whatever radiation is coming through the Earth or off the Earth and from the sun. Uh, so passively, it achieves temperatures of below 50 Kelvin, like I mentioned. And its, its goal is to provide a thermally stable environment. Uh, and the most impressive part, at least for me, is actually the sheer size of it which is about, they, they, the analogy is that it's tennis course size. It's about 21.2 meters by 14.2 meters, which is absolutely massive. And that's because it requires that kind of uh, surface area in order to dissipate uh, a lot of this heat. Uh, it's also a layered, but uh, maybe Theo can uh, touch more about this. Yeah, I I think the sun shield looks pretty cool. Um, it's it's made up of five layers, and having it in layers, so that was a design choice. It's more effective at insulating compared to having just one very thick sheet, and this is because the heat radiates out from between the layers, and the vacuum because it's in space. The vacuum space between the layers is a really good insulator. Uh, each layer of material blocks some heat; it deflects the rest out to the sides, resulting in little heat propagating to the telescope. So the layers are closer together in the center, further apart at the sides, so it kind of radiates off and away. Uh, so layer one is the sun-facing layer, like Katan said, so the Earth and sun-facing layer. Uh, layer five, so that's the the last one, is just under the primary mirror, and remember that's that big golden array of hexagons. Uh, so the first layer. The outermost one is 0 0.05 millimeters thick, and the other four are 0 0.025, so half that size, uh, millimeters thick. So they're very, very thin. These sun shields are made of Kapton, which is very popular space-grade uh, material, uh, especially for thermal purposes. Uh, it's also an interesting thing about these layers is that they are actually also thermally strapped. So what that means is that there are thermal, what they call thermal spot bonds. Uh, and some of these are actually, the reason this needs to occur is so that uh, if there are any tears in the sun shield, then the tear doesn't spread through the entire sun shield. Uh, and these bonds will actually stop it. One thing to also remember with these bonds then is that it does create a thermal interface between your layers, which means that you will... Uh, induce conduction between your layers but this is also okay because um if uh, once the heat reaches the final layer it will then radiate out into uh space mm -hmm. 
And then uh, next we can talk about the spacecraft bus. So that's kind of what houses all of the supporting technology. This one is a bit warmer, operates at 300 kelvins. And it's a carbon fiber box that houses six major subsystems. So the electrical power subsystem. So that's converting the sunlight that shines onto the solar array panels into the power that's needed by the payload. Uh, the second one is the attitude control subsystem. So that senses the orientation and makes sure that the entire telescope is in a stable orbit. Uh, third one is the communication subsystem. So that's what receives commands from the OCC. So that's the operations control center um, and transmits data back to earth. Fourth one is the command and data handling subsystem. And this is what basically holds the computer <laughs> and where the memory and data is stored. And then next is the propulsion subsystem. So that's where the fuel tanks and uh, rockets that maintain the orbit are contained and then finally the thermal control subsystem which we keep saying we keep talking about how important this is uh, but this is what helps to maintain uh, the operating temperature of the spacecraft bus so this is that active component so the sun shield helps out with the passive component and the thermal control subsystem is what helps with the more active component of uh, thermal control yeah and uh, an important note to make as well is that the limiting factor in the entire mission is actually the propulsion subsystem Right. Uh, so in general, the mission lifetime is uh, is dictated by how much how long the propulsion can actually last. Uh, I think we talk about this a bit more later, but uh, currently there is no way to actually refuel if that all runs out. Uh, mm -hmm. But we'll touch more on this later. So getting into a bit of the construction of the uh, actual uh, telescope and the bus and the sun shield and all. Um, naturally, uh, it was created in a sterile environment as most uh, space uh, satellites are. Uh, so the mirrors were actually created from all over the United States. And so it's pretty hard to track down every single step uh, they took. And uh, it's the finally the the beryllium powder was actually I think this is a part you found cool right with the gold coating and the beryllium powder so you can take it away if you want there yeah yeah we mentioned earlier when we were talking about the mirrors um, earlier those big golden mirrors we talked about how they're made out of beryllium those are important for you know keeping the temperature they're also a very light material it's made out of this beryllium uh, powder so what happened is that the powder was placed into stainless steel ca canister pressed into a flat shape and then it was kind of made into two mirror blanks once that was taken out every step is inspected of course to make sure everything is nominal each mirror segment is polished and then uh, they're tested to make sure they're not going to change shape at very cool temperatures the final polishing for this stage was completed in 2011 and then now this is the part i really like which is the thin uh gold coating which we did mention earlier but this is applied by vacuum vapor deposition um and this improves like we mentioned the mirror's reflection of infrared light which is important because we don't want that infrared noise and uh basically areas of the mirror that shouldn't be coated so the backside and the mechanisms those are masked off and then they're put into a vacuum chamber and a small quantity of gold like actual gold is vaporized and then the cloud of gold condenses on the surface of the mirror to form this very very thin film about a hundred nanometers thick three grams of gold per mirror 
Um, and then they've got a thin layer of glass that's put on top of that to protect it from scratches, since pure gold is pretty soft, as we know. And this method maximizes reflection, takes about an hour for each of the hexagons. Remember, there's 18 of those. So overall, the entire process takes a decent amount of time. And then the mirror assembly, after they're fitted with protective covers and everything, that was done February 2016. And then science instruments were integrated later on. Everything was tested out. They had to test um, for acoustics and vibration. That's very important when you're going to launch something. You want to make sure it's like even if you make it all correctly and then you launch it and then you lose it during the launch because it just can't withstand the vibrations. Lots of uh, flight equipment, actually, like I think all flight equipment has to be vibration tested before it's launched. Make sure it can withstand the loads. Um, and then the mirror alignment was tested at JSC, the Johnson Space Center, and all the sensors were verified and everything. So that's the bulk of the assembly process. Yeah, definitely. And as Theo mentioned, the, they always say the biggest loads you experience are actually the launch. So once you're actually yes, up there, it's uh, usually not vibration that will kill you, usually. Mm -hmm. um, usually. <laughs> and so that kind of brings us to, well, I guess how it was itself. actually launched, right? Yeah. And as we mentioned at the beginning, uh, the Ariane 5 uh, rocket was... Uh, was selected for this mission and i mean one reason for this was to increase international collaboration as ariane 5 is the or ariane in general is a french contractor who largely works with the esa but also it was chosen due to its reliability and i think it's worth noting ariane has actually been around since about the 80s and actually launched some of the first satellites and they consider themselves or i guess they are uh, one of the, if not the first private commercial space launch provider. Um, so the launch was part of the agency's, the US, yeah, the European Space Agency's contribution to the mission. And due to this, uh, the European scientists are actually given about 15% of the observation time aboard James Webb. And uh, I mean, they, they, uh, I think the U.S. got a good deal out of there. You know, the the Europeans yeah, yeah. did put the whole thing in space. But give us a rocket, fifteen we'll percent. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like it was probably like a dragon's den. Pit. Yeah. I'll sit there and be like, I'll give you a rocket for fifteen percent of your. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, in general, uh, the like we mentioned, uh, it's. I, I I mentioned previously one of the biggest issues is that it's uh not currently serviceable, uh and so it was not made to be serviceable either uh in in this planning phase. Uh, it is worth noting though uh that uh this will be worked on in uh, the near future. Uh, so getting into a bit of the launch, go ahead, Theo. Yeah, sure. So Ariane Space, the company that you know made the Ariane Five, their uh, launch complex is at Europe Spaceport, which is located near um, or in French Guiana. And uh, so that launch happened Christmas Day, twenty twenty one. So, like Katan mentioned at the start, that's about a year ago from when we're recording right now. And this launch set the record for most mass delivered into a geostationary transfer orbit with a payload of ten point two metric tons. Um, at separation 
It's very important for launches to be held on or near the Earth's equator. Uh, that's because of the Coriolis force. If you ever took a dynamics course, you'll know what that is. <laughs> I won't go into it. Um, but it helps give you a little bit of an additional push, and there's no deflection caused by the force at the equator. So the Ariane 5 rocket provided thrust for about 26 minutes after the morning liftoff. Um, and then after the second stage engine cut off, uh, James Webb Space Telescope separated from the rocket, and that triggered the solar array to deploy within minutes so that um, the telescope could start making electricity from sunshine right away and stop draining its battery. Uh, Webb quickly established its ability to orient itself and uh, quote-unquote fly <laughs> in space. So on this first day, Ariane um, 5 sent Webb on a direct route to L2, Lagrange Point 2. And it did not have to first orbit the Earth. Um, most launches do have to do that uh, first. Uh, the first and most important trajectory correction maneuver was performed using small rocket engines on Webb itself. So that's on that spacecraft bus that we mentioned earlier, this bit of actuation correction maneuvers. If you were watching the live stream, you would have seen them kind of um, in mission control speak like they were talking through all of these different correction maneuvers. They also released and deployed the high gain antenna to enable uh, data communication as early as possible. And then the primary mirror was unfolded January 8th, 2022. So it was earlier this year, just a couple weeks after the launch. And then it finally reached L2 about a month after the launch on January 24th of 2022. Right. So, and then once it reaches L2, as we mentioned, it's actually in a geostationary, uh, what is called a transfer orbit. So that's to say that it's geostationary. So it's relative to the Earth. It's stationary. Uh, and it's um, it's a transfer orbit because it's uh, it's actually moving from the one Earth orbit to another orbit. So that's where the transfer part comes from, and that takes what you know some kind of injection of propulsion, and uh, that's where the interesting part was that it actually went directly to this orbit. Uh, the, so in terms of the mirror deployment itself. So it, it began by unfolding and latching the secondary mirror uh, tripod and then uh, latching the two primary mirror wings. So that's a whole lot of mumbo jumbo just to say that uh, the 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 secondary mirror was uh, set up and then it started unfurling, I guess, its mirrors. Uh, and finally, the it, it goes through several steps, but eventually the whole setup is cooled down carefully uh, so that shrinking doesn't actually damage the whole setup uh, because as we know, things contract when they when they get cool, cooled down. Uh, and then finally, uh, the in, the initial checks and uh, mirror alignments uh, were conducted. And this was this mm -hmm. is actually a really important step mirror alignments, uh, actually one of the inspirations for having so many motors on the uh, on James Webb Space Telescope is actually learning from the Hubble Space Telescope because Hubble, um, many of you may not recall, but uh, originally did not work because- there, Yeah, it wasn't in focus. There, it wasn't in focus because there was some mirror that's un, that, you know, unaligned, I guess if you can say, uh, over the course of launch at some point. And so they actually had to go and service it to avoid this problem, especially so far away, uh, it, where we can't even reach it currently. Uh, they decided to have all these actuators and uh, carefully perform this alignment. Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. So like we mentioned, all those golden hexagons, there's um, 18 of those. So there's 18 primary mirror segments. But when we refer to that entire section, we refer to it as just the primary mirror. We refer to it as just one mirror because you don't want every single one of these 18 segments to be acting as their own telescope. You want it to all be working together as a single telescope. So they all had to be aligned perfectly to within a fraction of the wavelength of light. So about 50 nanometers, they had to be aligned to within that range for them to all work together. So the kind of unfolding was happening early to mid-January. Um, the alignment was going on um, in March. So the way that worked, like we mentioned at the start, they were using NearCam, the near-infrared camera, and enabling it to focus and snap a crystal clear image of a bright star. And they would keep taking this image and align all the mirrors in different iterations um, you can actually search up the test the test images of this whole process. Um, and then eventually they kind of got it all aligned together. And then they went on to align the mirrors for the remaining instruments. And then the team confirmed the mirrors were aligned and directing light onto the four instruments by capturing a set of test images, uh, like I mentioned, to cover the telescope's full field of view. So mid-infrared, near-infrared, whatever it may be. So we can go a bit into talking about what these instruments actually found. Um, so the observations over the first year, I actually watched the live stream of when they um, they revealed the first five images, 11th or 12th, something like that. I remember I was at work and we just kind of put it up on a screen. We all just sat there and watched it. <laughs> yeah, I remember I was actually traveling at the time. And so I uh, received the, these notifications on my phone. It was just like another country admiring it. Uh, yeah. But in, in general, so after the alignment and everything took place, uh, one of the early science goals were to target the Kuiper belt. That's how it's pronounced, right? Kuiper? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Your guess is... Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's pretty weirdly spelt. But yeah, the Kuiper belt. Uh, and also some of the distant quasars. Uh, so quasars are these high energy events. Um, we actually ex explained this in our um, episode on... Uh, Intro to astronomy, beginners got to yeah, yeah, yeah. astronomy. Like Some, that. <laughs> From about last space season. phenomena is <laughs> our season finale. Yeah. So if you don't know what a quasar is, please check that out. Um, and the the reason for this was to look at the gas distribution between galaxies, uh, and situate them in the timeline of the universe. So quasars are a source of background light, and um. Uh, and th this kind of helps us understand, uh, you know, I guess the formation of the universe, the distances between us and the quasars and a whole bunch of other properties. Um, it, this, another interesting thing that it was looked at in the same vein was uh, cosmological redshifts. And redshifting is basically what happens when an object is moving away from you at a very uh, fast speed. Uh, this causes the wavelengths to uh, shift towards the red spectrum because they actually increase in wavelength. So that's going towards infrared, right? They're, they're, uh, if you've ever looked at the visible light spectrum, red is towards the, the, uh, the long, longer wavelengths. And this teaches us a bit about, uh, well, not only how fast things are moving away from us, uh, but also how it's about like, the expansion of the universe, how far, how fast it's accelerating away from us, and other interesting properties. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I'll go in a bit, just a bit of detail about the first uh, the first image release. So yeah, that was uh, early to mid July of this year, 2022. Um, so the first one that they put up was this Galaxy cluster S M A C S zero seven two three. <laughs> as it appeared 4.6 billion years ago i just love the way they name things no i actually hate it but I mean, <laughs> it's <just> super <laughs> random we'll, we'll play yeah. along i'm sure it's not yeah, random actually i'm sure it's very not random yeah yeah i i'm sure that <laughs> yeah. we should look into that actually <laughs> but uh i would pronounce it as galaxy cluster smacks 0723 <laughs> uh, but yeah they they observed it as it appeared 4.6 billion years ago i remember seeing that photo and i was like oh my goodness it's insane because it's a bunch of galaxies and it's like you think about you know we're just a little spot in the milky way and then there's this super zoomed out image of a bunch of other ones that some of them might not even exist anymore right because this is how that cluster appeared 4.6 billion years ago um and then they uh like we mentioned there was this exoplanet named uh, wasp 96b that's another fun name uh and they put up the atmospheric composition there recently actually they found uh, co2 in its atmosphere as well um but I remember when they were doing the release, they just put off like a graph. And I was like, this is not a cool picture. But I'm sure to scientists, it was like a cool picture. They, were, they uh, saw this, exoplanet this, this graph. They were like, oh my God, look at that peak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and then some other notable ones were the Southern Ring uh, Nebula. So that's the one that kind of looks like an eye or like this open veil in space. That one's really cool. There's the Cosmic Cliff photo, um, known as the Carina Nebula. So that one you might recognize if you look at the photo. It's it's um, an upgrade to Hubble's really famous photo of the same nebula. If you put them side by side, it's pretty cool to compare the difference in detail and resolution. And then there was Stefan's Quintet um, of Galaxies. So that's five galaxies kind of all grouped together. All really cool. You can download the HD photos uh, online. Would highly encourage you to take a look if you haven't seen them already. Um, and, you know, in this first set of observations... They spotted two galaxies that may be the most distant ever seen. Um, Glass Z11 and Glass Z13. <laughs> so those are fun names. And those are named for their uh, 11 and 13 redshifts. Um, there, there were recently some photos of Jupiter's auroras, a very beautiful blue photo. And then another photo recently of these concentric shells around a star, uh, WR140. Um, you Definitely just go... Look at a gallery of James Webb uh, photos, but my personal favorite is um, the Pillars of Creation. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. It's also another upgrade from Hubble's famous photo, but it's really cool. It, it's it kind of looks like a hand just in space, just you know, Statue of Liberty style hand. It, it, what's amazing about all of it too is that it kind of just looks like a cloud, right? But this cloud is absolutely massive, like on the scale of size of galaxies, right? Because the reason it's called the Pillars of Creation, too, is because it's clouds like these which were which formed or actually are continuing to form galaxies and planets and suns and uh, and stars, right? So uh, it's very cool to see. Another cool thing you can kind of notice and that distinguishes some of James Webb's uh, uh, images i guess is uh these four kind of lines that surround uh the stars and that bright objects that are imaged uh so it's kind of an artifact that's just due to the imaging technology on board 
Uh, and basically you end up with these four lines of light that kind of surround and kind of make like a typical like star kind of format on there, like a, like as if you were drawing a star. Um, and so it's, it, there's one horizontal, one vertical and two diagonal lines that kind of intersect through this bright point. If you take a look at any of these images, you'll, you'll definitely see them. Yeah. So those are, um, an artifact like they're a, a byproduct of the shape of the mirrors so there are these six kind of main uh points and the, that's because they're hexagon the mirrors are hexagon shaped remember that and then you've got this like horizontal line in the middle and that's a result of the diffraction spikes from the, that secondary mirror so yeah moving on to kind of the uh, the future work on this. So like we've repeated time and time again throughout this episode, uh, James Webb is too distant for repairs or upgrades. It's not serviceable and um, it, it wasn't designed to be serviceable, but it was designed to be as reliable as possible <laughs> without regular servicing. Um, and this is something interesting to note. The next flagship uh, mission, so the previously known as the Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope, but recently renamed to the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope. So this, um, this one is designed to be robotically serviced. And that one is scheduled, slotted for launch May 2027. Since uh, James Webb has had such a long kind of development process, I don't think they were really planning for this robotic servicing, on-orbit servicing um, during its lifetime, but that's all right. That being said, it has encountered problems in the last year that we can get to a bit. Yeah, so uh, right off the bat, uh, I think in the first couple months of operation, uh, they actually had an impact on uh, the mirrors, uh, so from micrometeorites. And this is ex this was actually expected over the lifetime to occur um, a few times, right? But uh not so quickly i don't think was predicted uh that this would occur i think the probability was insanely low that it would happen i think they just quickly. weren't expecting like noticeable like large rocks i think they said like in the last year it's actually been hit like several times but m much much smaller rocks yeah like, this collision that katana is mentioning for may was a big one a yeah big one. <laughs> and so it caused uh, some some issues with the imaging and they had to recalibrate the mirrors and, I guess, take into account uh, some of the artifacting that would have been produced by this scratch or whatever uh, the damage from the um, micrometeorite was. And uh, it turns out that they've been able to work around it so far. Uh, there's definitely been other issues, uh, I think, more recently that the yeah, Theo. Um, yeah. So, like we were, when we were talking about the... Um... The instruments, the payloads. Um, I mentioned there was a recent issue with the mid infrared camera, or also known as Miri. So this actually failed August twenty fourth of this year due to increased friction in one of the mechanisms, um, in one of its modes in the medium resolution spectroscopy mode. Um, they did solve the issue, uh, remotely. So they had to turn off the camera, make some observations. The team successfully made some predictions based on a wheel friction test. And then they plan to keep the affected wheel in balance and monitor the wheel's health before allowing it to return to full operation. And then very, very recently, um, earlier this month, actually, December 7th, there was another observatory uh, glitch because there was a software hiccup in the spacecraft's attitude control system that we mentioned. Um, so that's what keeps the spacecraft properly oriented. Remember that. 
and it sent the full telescope into safe mode pretty much which like turns off any of the non-essential uh like life producing components so between december 7th and december 20th the telescope was just missing like days worth of science work because they've got you know um ob- observations scheduled for you know every single day so during that chunk of time they were missing some uh, some science work but that's all been rescheduled and um normal observations resumed as of the day we're recording they just resumed three days ago so this is a pretty recent hiccup but thankfully the engineers are on top of it and they figured that out yeah definitely and i mean this is normal in this kind of complex science history and honestly it's great that there haven't been any bigger uh issues uh, specifically anything related to deployment or otherwise everything went smoothly until that point um Another thing to note is, uh, so the expected lifetime of this mission was uh, about, so well, the planned lifetime was about 10 years, and then the expected life is about 20 years, but the primary mission is planned to last about five and a half years, right? So uh, the, the th- when it comes to the servicing of James Webb, at the current time when they launched, they had no, they have had no plans to service the mission, and currently still do not. However, they they, they did say that uh, they don't plan on uh, not attempting to develop the technologies necessary, so that by the time it uh, it reaches an expected lifetime or planned lifetime in ten to twenty years, uh, that they might might be able to service it and keep it operational for even longer. The problem is that those mm-hmm. technologies, we can't predict when they'll be ready, but it's not a foregone conclusion as of right now. Yep, exactly. So all in all, uh, that was a lot to take in maybe, <laughs> but the James Webb Space Telescope really is like a feat of human capabilities, right? Like it's really a crazy piece of technology. All the payloads that went into it, all the science that's coming out of it, all the manufacturing and you know the the engineering remote maintenance dealing with all the issues um it's it's very very impressive and just looking at the photos it's exciting um so we hope that you enjoyed this uh tidbit of nerd uh <laughs> mouth barfing but uh uh that was a bit about the James Webb Space Telescope as we near its 1 year anniversary well, we hope you enjoyed the episode and we hope that you join us again in the next one. So thanks a lot. Uh, make sure you take a look at those photos and we'll talk at you soon. Goodbye. We'd also like to thank our research team in the creation of this episode. We couldn't have done it without them. So big thanks to Afrin, Jillian, Tamor, and Leanne, uh, which is where the research team for this episode. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. You can follow us on Instagram at underscore the sound of space and LinkedIn at the sound of space. Continue the conversation and let us know your thoughts on all things aerospace. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the sound of space.